Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me are the co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> Good. How's your uh, How's your YouTube and everything else going? Uh, it's it's coming along. I think I have 16 subscribers, Woo-hoo! which, you know, is, hey, it's double digits. <laughs> and it's, it's in the high 30s here in New Orleans, which is rare. So it's all good. High 30s temperature? Is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes. Temperature. Wow. Yes. That's cold. Yeah. Down here, yes. inside, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. And then we got Wailu. Hey, Wai. Hello. Hey, Don. G'day. <laughs> we got a, <laughs> everybody's going to have their own little signature. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks. Hey, good. Good. Everybody have a good holidays. Yeah. Christmas. Yeah. I miss recording. I know this will come out later, but you know, we just had Christmas and New Year's and Election yeah, lots and lots and lots fun. of presents for my son. Yeah. Like more than I ever got in all the Christmases put together. <laughs> wow. Yeah, my son Kids are so up. spoiled these days, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. My son came up, so I got to see him for the first time in a while. But you know, cool. we still played it safe and kept distant when we were outside. Yeah. We Has went he, to a park that had a bunch of uh, Christmas lights and checked that out. And then I gave him his presents and things like that. So they were chess piece puzzles, which was pretty interesting. You like those. It's like little pieces hidden inside of chess pieces, and you have to figure out how to get the pieces apart. Maybe I should put that as one of my picks someday. I didn't think of it today, but all right. Our guest today is Jimmy Bogard. Welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. Welcome. So as we do usual, please give us the lowdown of who you are and what you do and how you got into .NET programming. Oh, how I got into it. Okay, well, let's just start with me. Uh, yeah, so my name is Jimmy Bogard. I'm an independent consultant and uh, also acting as a chief architect at a local consulting company here in Austin called Headspring. What were the other questions? What do I do? Well, I've been working in the .NET space since forever, like 2003 or something, and mainly working with clients to take whatever their old busted stuff is and build new, new fun stuff, and then doing whatever it is I need to do to be able to make that happen. Whether it's uh, building new web apps or new spas or new backend messaging apps, it's like whatever they need is uh, what I learned how to do and then help them do it. Fun times. Nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Austin's a nice place. I almost went to uh, Texas A&M, but being up in the Pacific Northwest, that was a little bit far from me and I didn't want to go there. So I stayed a little closer to home, but I was thinking about going there. It's a nice place. We don't talk about Texas A&M in Austin, by the way. It's a rival. (laughs) All right. So what should we talk about? How about open source with .NET? 
That sounds like a good topic. Yeah, I do. I do a little bit of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for for people who aren't familiar, Jimmy created Mediator, which we've actually discussed on a previous or more than one previous podcast. So, Jimmy, can you fill us in on what Mediator is and does? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Mediator is a kind of a a very stupid library, in my opinion, because it was like a hundred lines of code that I was copying from project to project. And then finally, my boss is like, could you just make a, a NuGet package out of this? I would, didn't really want to because my my other big open source project is Automapper. And like, that's such a headache to have to deal, deal with like that. Like, I don't, I don't really feel like it. But after the fourth time, like, fine, uh, I'll go ahead and, and make that project. And the general idea is that the mediator is just a implementation or mediate R with the R is an implementation of the mediator pattern. And the idea behind that is you want to separate the things that are passing requests to your to your kind of your application behind the scenes. You want to have kind of a layer in between there so you're not calling directly into the code that's, that's doing the work. There's kind of a layer of encapsulation there. And the reason why it really came about was that we were building a lot of MVC applications. And in those MVC applications, the controllers can get gnarly. So we were doing the right thing with our, you know, like layered architecture of taking the code out of the controller actions and then putting them somewhere. But where was the somewhere? Well, the somewhere was in all these like services. And so our controllers like started looking very similar. We're like, well, I got this controller with six services and those six services look awfully similar. They're just like doing this one thing. And so for us, Mediator was trying to really capture that pattern of, I have a request coming in at the UI level and then really need to like delegate it down to kind of the, the inner application layer. And to do so, we'd wrap every single every single request and, and capture all of its inputs in a request object, capture all the outputs in a re- response object. And then a handler would be the thing that took the request and, and pushed out a response. So the idea was that we would, instead of having like developers argue about what these services should be and what they should look like, we just said, forget it. We're just gonna have a uniform interface of a handler that took a request, gave you a response, and then... Then your controller is just using this mediator to take the outside inputs and then delegate them to the handler and then give back to the response, which could be used then for JSON or uh, razor views, whatever it might be. So very, <laughs> it started out very simple, just you know, 100 lines of code to say, I just need to find a handler for this request, pass it to the handler, and then get a response. You know, I feel like it, it definitely solves a common problem. We've actually had discussions in my development teams of whether we needed a repository layer behind the service layer or not, or whether entity framework would work as our repository layer and, and mm-hmm. how, how you end up having to break down these different calls and you, you want to build them to be reusable, but you end up really not reusing them. Right. Mm-hmm. So it has worked. We, we initially started that pattern. I think my, my first or second project when I was working with Headspring, I was there for about, 13 years before I went to independent and then just stayed on as like an outside consulting with them. So we used that pattern since like my, almost my first or second project there, but it just took a while to kind of formalize into something we would actually, I could put in an open source project. And part of that process too is like some of my first open source experiences were like doing the kitchen sink thing. We're like, let's make this project and put like everything, every common thing in there. So it was like, you know, something, I don't know. It was like something that common. So there's just you know, all the common utilities and functions in there. And so it took a while to kind of distill down what 
really that mediator pattern was. So it was just, it's just doing that and not trying to do a whole lot more. And that was really what I wanted to do is like unambitious, kind of bare bones, just something that's easy to drop in and, and get going as opposed to again, copy, paste, copy, paste, I'll go again and again. So according to NuGet, there's been about 22 million downloads of Mediator. That's 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 pretty good. Surprising. <laughs> it, it's been around a while. So does it support both full framework and .NET Core? Oh yeah, it does. I guess Net Standard two point something. So yeah, all the. I guess it probably supports like Windows Phone eight or something. If <laughs> there's still folks that really want to, yeah, the three people in the world that still have one of those things, I guess. It must be kind of amazing headphones. So you know, I'm I'm kind of stuck in the bed. So it must be kind of amazing to kind of build something that I don't know. It's got like that that many projects kind of relying on. Yeah, it's a bit of a. a I guess most I open sources. I guess all of it these days is really just me taking something I'm using in a client project that's been you know I've I've seen it work a few times, pulling it out because I don't want to copy paste anymore, and then putting it in a new Git package. And sometimes, sometimes a lot of other people seem to like it. And sometimes it's, it's not quite as popular, but all my projects are like that, though. It's just like something I'm using, something that I want to use in the next thing. And so put it in an open source project, NuGet package, and then there we go. But it is, uh, the, the other edge of that sword is some people really don't like these projects. And so it is, it is weird to see like people hate your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, does it does it take a life of its own? Like, do you have to like maintain it, and do you get people asking for PRs and things like that, or submitting PRs? Oh yeah, I learned pretty on early on too with my my auto mapper project of like, don't just take code from anybody. I used to, at first I was like super super excited when I got those those PRs, you know, because this is something I just built for myself, and so to see someone else excited about it and want to contribute code, that's not an easy thing to do. Then I thought, okay, well, you know, they went through all this trouble. Better just take the code. But then years later, you have to support that code that you didn't write. So with uh, Mediator, I, I, I took the approach of like, I want to be super careful about what features I put in there and then only put in the things that I think I would use or, or, or want to use on my client projects. Because really, I don't get paid for it. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't earn any money from downloads or anything like that. So if there's something in there that breaks and someone complains about it, like it's free work for me to fix it. So I don't really want to do that. So really the only thing is I put in there these days, it's just stuff that I, I could see that I would use or that I am actually using in a project. Like I would use in a project, that sort of thing. Well, Automapper has got 122 million downloads. <laughs> so I think you should charge like a nickel. Honestly, I was going to say, I think just about anybody who's developing .NET has used Automapper. But, that was not the intent. Um, <laughs> what was the intent then? <laughs> it was it was, again a library to solve like a very specific problem we were having on a project. Like that one came about was we were again it's it's you know big MVC project, and this was before like the ASP.NET community had decided view models were the thing we wanted to do. It was like very early on we're like, yeah, let's go ahead and pass entity framework objects directly to the views. Why not? And then looping over them and they're calling queries to the background. So they're like, no, we want to we want to create a DTO that is a thing. And so we were at the early part of a project we're like, oh, no, we're going to have to create. I don't know. We were looking at like hundreds of these DTOs and then hundreds, thousands and thousands of lines of mapping code, which is dumb code. But the other thing we were noticing there was we don't have to make this whole thing about Automapper, by the way. It's just <laughs> where it came from. We noticed that developers were 
just like every single detail was kind of hand artisanally crafted, bespoke, designed, not because it needed to, just because we had no guardrails to say this is what they should look like. So Automapper from us was really just, it was the, our, the architect at the time, what was with me is like, we're going to have this huge problem. We're going to have all this code just to support these stupid maps because we decided to create view models. So we don't want to, we don't want to make, you know, have to maintain all these thousands of lines of code that are just like not value add. So Automapper was really just, so I thought those two problems of enforce the convention, like view models will always look like this. And the other one was testability to say, we don't want to write hundreds of unit tests to test the mapping of all these DTOs, just like write, write one line test, make sure the thing is valid and good to go. So that was, a, it was supposed to be very constrained that we had this very specific design choice of DTOs must look like a flattened version of the thing you're mapping from, and you want to enforce this convention. And so for us, like it's not that many projects where we actually want those things, but then I guess a lot of other people just saw it as a general purpose mapping tool and I wasn't smart enough to get ahead of it and say, please don't do that. Cause that's, I get a, I get a lot of I grief from people of like, Oh my God, I have this architecture that has 18 layers and we use automapper between each layer. And it's, and it's so complicated. I'm like, it's not my fault. <laughs> it was supposed to be so simple. Yeah. Well, if I you, went the other way. 18 layers yeah. using automapper, something's wrong. I mean, 18 layers, period. <laughs> something's wrong. It's like lasagna. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things though, right. That, Right. You you create an automapper to to meet a need. Right. And people may have run with it in a way you didn't intend. You did the same thing with Mediator. Right. And you came up with this idea of vertical slice architecture, which is what prompted Mediator in, in that pattern. Right. Yeah. So that that whole concept just came about from us building a lot of kind of layered based systems and getting more and more frustrated with them of having to like go through more and more hoops to like get things to work, to still be able to follow all the rules. So a buddy of mine who, uh, who was really, really smart on the, on the UI side, his name is Tim Thomas. We got together, like, okay, we're about to create a new, like big web application. And it was a clean slate. We got, we had complete control over the front and back in architecture. And so we got together and said, okay, we, we've had enough of this, <laughs> this madness of like these very strict rules of, uh, you know, this can't reference that. You can have any references outside of this. So we took a really hard look about, you know, how developers actually work with our systems and the, the frictions that they run into in order to make changes. And I remember that when I was the tech lead on the project that came up with Automapper, we, I wanted to make it easy, as easy as possible for developers to add features to the system, knowing that, like, I didn't want to be in the position where the business or product owners are like, Oh, we can't go fast enough because developers can't code, you know, whatever. I wanted to make sure that they were the bottleneck, not the developers. So at one point I like I wrote down all the steps so to to add a feature to the system. I wrote down all the steps to if I want to add a new field to a screen, here's all the places and here's all the things you need to do. And I kept that list. And then later on in this new project that I knew was going to be like years long in development, I went, I revisited that list and I was like, this is so frustrating that if I need to add a feature to a system, I got to go all over the application code base in order to do so. And if something goes wrong, I got to go all over the code base to understand like what, what are the possible things that could happen. So me and my friend Sam got together and said, okay, let's, is there another way we can look at this that isn't so focused on categorizing the code into different buckets and then putting all the code that is one of those things into that, that spot? 
It's like, I, I think of it similar as like a, a taxonomy of the you know, animal kingdom that you're trying to like categorize everything and stick everything in this place. When really we should be looking more like ecosystems, like putting everything that's in a common ecosystem together. So we really looked at like that of saying, well, if, if a developer needs to change all these different files in order to add a feature to the system, why can't we just put all of those different files together in one spot? We didn't want to put them all in one file, so it wasn't going to be like one giant file that housed everything. But it's more like you know they'll, they'll still be they'll still be separated into their the kinds of things that they are. But can we put them in a common place so that if I want to know how some feature works, that it's all put together in one single spot? So we started doing that and just said you know we're going to try this and see how it works. And if it doesn't work, then we can always roll back and go to the other stuff. But we took a very kind of a Yagni you ain't going to need it kind of approach and saying we're going to put things that belong together or, or change together, wait, how, yeah. <laughs> things that change together should belong together. So we put everything together, even the front end stuff. So at the time you, we were using Backbone and Marionette. So dating myself on that project. That brings back uh, memories. <laughs> some of them good, probably. <laughs> Most okay. of them that. Don't we worry, Caleb and I have dated ourselves many, many, many times. Oh, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I've been working with web apps since, since like 2000 something 2002 or so so that's predating jquery for me my first time so we uh we said even the even the javascript files you know so we put all the javascript related to a specific page we put it in a javascript file next to the razor view that was that was that app all the dtos all the all the the handlers the validation rules put everything next to each other still separated by type but but still all next to each other so when i'm when I'm adding new features features to an application, I'm only ever adding new code. I'm not going back and changing code. I want to see how something works. Everything that is related to the code for that feature is that is in that one single spot. So we call that feature folders, and then eventually that kind of architecture I called vertical slice architecture. And it's probably had a different name before, but it was the best thing that easiest name that I could think of. Because everything else we were using up until that point was much more of a layered architecture that we separate code into common files by layer. So we had like a like a, a an orders controller, an order service, an orders repository, and all the code related to orders would be in that those same layer types. So a layer service would have every single thing that you could do with that thing across every single kind of request in the system. So there wasn't a whole lot of co- cohesion in those classes. And and it it kept running to issues for us where people would try to reuse those methods in other places and not realizing that they were creating coupling. Because when we needed to change that method for this one feature, well, we wind up breaking a whole bunch of other features. So we took a, a, a opposite approach and saying, we're going to keep everything together. And if there's something that needs to be shared between those, then we'll put those in a separate place and make it a very explicit opt-in decision to have something shared as opposed to they're not being much kind of separation and, and, and enforcement of s- separation between features. And, and you can just call, uh, you know, anything from anywhere. It's a, really, that's a lot like what you see in uh, React or Angular these days, right? You have everything yes. in the same folder that works with, with each other. Whereas right in .NET, you're much more used to putting everything in a services folder or repositories folder or, or a models folder, right? Um, I can definitely see the benefit in having it all in one place. No, and Angular didn't start out that way. The Angular JS days, right. like they were very right. much oh, the, yeah. <laughs> and I, I use them like, oh my, so I went after that project. My next big one was an Angular one. I'm like, oh no, back here again? <laughs> these 
but luckily they think you know they you know they they, they think, saw the air of the ways <laughs> right i i prefer angular to angular date js i think 99.99 of the way <laughs> yeah right well, they're basically two that. different frameworks aren't they really they're so different yes they are yeah yeah yeah, well, honestly, night and day. I really feel like they learned a lot. They, from they really should have just called it something different, to be honest. It makes the Google, at least in the early days, it made the, the Google searching so hard because you'd search <laughs> a, like a solution and it'd be like, oh, this is an Angular JS. Do you mean like, Angular or Angular JS? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you put in Angular 2, and it's like, well, here's now, right? Here's stuff from three years ago, <laughs> mm, <laughs> which right. is yeah, in fact, no longer relevant given, either. Given that it was a Google solution, you'd think that they would have been smart about the SEO. <laughs> so. Oh, you can say the same thing about ASP.NET and ASP.NET Core. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, sim- that's more similar, though. So. So, so can you talk a little more about vertical slice architecture, right? Not just the how the files are managed or, or co-located, but how you're actually isolating the code based on the types of requests you're, you're building. Yeah, so this kind of moving in towards a complete architectural style for a, a single application. I get that confusion a lot sometimes. Like it's, it's not a system architecture, it's an application architecture. So just in case anyone's confused about that. So that same project that we started doing this whole feature folder stuff, we we initially left it up to the developers to decide, should we use a handler or not? And what we found is that our general advice is saying, well, if it's, if it's quote, complex, then go ahead and do the feature folder thing, the handler thing. But if it's simple, just do it in the controller. And as long as you have a good integration test for it, then who cares? What we found is that everyone's opinion of what's complex <laughs> is different. So we'd have these cases where we'd see, you know, it started out small, five lines of code and controller, no big deal. But it would grow over time. People needed to change this kind of critical passive application and became bigger and bigger. So we said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. The next time, if we, if you decide to go take on like feature folders and using the mediator pattern, you universally don't decide on a case-by-case basis. Even though the handlers may be stupid and simple, it's much simpler for the next developer coming on board to not have to think about what are the rules that are, are that make me go this one direction from the other. So what that led us on a path that is, uh, once you kind of make that choice of saying, all of the controller is going to look like this, which is using a mediator to delegate the real business logic to a handler, then you can start to really rally around that design and, and starting to put a lot more enhancements into doing so, as well as giving you guardrails and saying, this is when you know you're kind of outside the bounds of, of doing that. So vertical slice architecture is really about, one, embracing this kind of, this, this flipping the layers on its head, saying we're going we're gonna to first, first put all of our logic really inside the slice first. And only when that becomes painful, either through you know, too much logic or whatever it is, that's when we're going to move things out and really focus our, our organizational structure and architecture around this idea of there's a mediator with one request going in and one response going out. And those requests and response are distinct per each individual request in my system. Um, that does lead to some issues in which there are, of course, solutions for. But one of the things you run into is that in your old kind of layered star architecture, it was very easy for you to share code between kind of different requests in the system. For me, I saw that as a kind of a drawback to that style architecture because it's very easy to put us, you know, you have some service with a method and you're looking like, oh, that's the, 
I don't know, the user authentication service. So I can go in and call that method, but you don't know what the you don't know what it's actually doing behind the scenes. And so someone changes that from underneath you, you don't necessarily know that it's going to break your situation or not. So we said, and this is this idea of vertical slices, you you put every you put everything in the handler first, just make it as dumb as possible. And then only when you you encounter code smells or 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 pain in terms of development pain, that's when you start to refactor that code into other other places, wherever that might be. So it could start out simple in your handler and you go through it and realize that you're having a hard time understanding it. And so you could just refactor the code inside that single class. Or you find yourself copying and pasting between multiple handlers and say, now we need to actually pull that together into some kind of common location. But the idea is to, to really focus on that vertical first. And then only when you're really feeling that sort of pain that you start to pull things, something, uh, pull those things off into common locations. So that's, <laughs> that's vertical slice in a nutshell and how it, how it really differs from some other architectural styles, such as, I guess, clean architecture is another one out there. Um, Onion's another one common out there. Those are very kind of prescriptive guidance about what code belongs where. With vertical slices, I don't, I don't try to have that sort of prescriptive guidance about what could go where. The handlers can really do anything, and that's the, the kind of nice thing about it. You, from the application perspective, you're delegating from the application down to the uh, kind of business logic what it should do, but you don't care how it is supposed to accomplish that. So for one handler, it could use SQL directly and call stored procedure. Um, another one may need to call an API to do something. Another one may be doing you know, more of a D2D approach where it has to delegate down to the kind of domain model to be able to do some work. But the key is that that's really a, a handler by handler basis, as opposed to something saying, you know, we're going to go DDD, so we need to have this very strict layer architecture. When for, you know, eighty percent of the requests, that's completely overkill, and you don't need it. So, are there are there certain use cases that you would recommend where you use vertical slice and where you use clean? Or so for for a lot of my systems, I can kind of project out to know how big the system is going to be. But for smaller systems, smaller applications, it's complete overkill because it's just it does introduce a level of indirection. So when you go from a controller action that just talks to you know talks to the dependency or talks to, it does the code directly, that's much easier to understand and debug than saying actually we're going to be delegating the work really to these feature folders over here, and that's really where the where the work lies. Because one of the problems you run into pretty quickly with like MVC is that you have these controllers that that really define the routes of your application. But there's a problem with that and that it's like this pinch point of logic and code that you that you run into. And so we kind of want to put controllers over here and don't want those to get messy, delegating off to our handlers that really have the meat of the logic. But in doing so, that that is not the kind of normal way of doing coding in the .NET space. You don't typically see someone de- depending on this 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 layer of abstraction, this mediator thing that doesn't make it easy for you to go directly from the controller to the actual work being done. There's no like F12 capabilities when you're inside a code using a mediator pattern. That's the whole point is that you're trying to distance yourselves from the actual work being done and your controller stays, you know, kind of just really focused on the UI stuff. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium.
Yeah, with NBC, there's so much convention, and it really doesn't like you to go outside of that convention, uh, which is kind of what you want to do here, because you're trying to really re-architecture how things are structured. Mm-hmm. Now, it it's not like vertical slices, uh, because there's no, I don't have any guidance whatsoever about what happens inside your handler. That's a good and bad thing, like good, because it's kind of your business, <laughs> what, you know, how you handle each request from the application layer perspective. They're delegating to a handler, but you know the implementation details is up to you. But the downside is now you as developer have to have a lot more ownership of what, what happens inside that handler. So if the code gets ugly, it's on you to refactor that to something else, which I'm okay with because I, I got started in the coding world actually doing XP and Scrum and Agile. So for me, like refactoring is just kind of a, a second nature thing that I do all the time with my code, but that's not necessarily something that's that's second nature to most folks. So for for teams that don't have that kind of second nature or, or aren't experienced with refactoring, they're they're probably going to be do better with a more prescriptive guidance about here are the primitives of things and here's the there's the place where you need to put the specific kind of code. But for a lot of my teams, that's not good enough guidance. Like the code is going to get gnarly eventually and so you have to have those refactoring skills so speaking of refactoring then what about testing um how would you test these these handlers would you just oh, yeah standard unit tests? so for us that was another one of the pain points that we we were trying to address going from the it wasn't clean architecture it was uh onion architecture which is same as hexagonal they're you know the, they're all very similar but we unit tested everything first even our handlers so that that big application that spawned automapper we were using DDD and onion architecture repositories, you know, a whole nine yards. They have, they have yards in Australia, right? Meters. Whole, we call them meters, but nine <laughs> meters, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's Aussie, there's Aussie league football. I, I, I've been to game there. So we, we saw a, a problems keep cropping up in these, these unit tests that were talking to these dependencies that were really database dependencies. It's like repositories that talk to a database. So our unit tests would mock those things out. Which you think wouldn't be a problem, like you know, get thing by ID. That's not going to be a problem, except ORMs are are highly sophisticated <laughs> libraries that are very very complex underneath the covers. So we would have things like, oh, call the repository, and in the mock, we'd get this object back, and everything was fine. But in the real world, like you have to do things like fetching, eager fetching, or lazy loading to get your stuff out to be able to work correctly. And if you didn't have that stuff configured right, they would just bomb when you would go to production or you ran the application. So like, well, okay, repository, you know, we say get by ID, but really it needs to fetch these other things. So we create like a query object or something or specification object to do that sort of stuff. But we'd still mock it out in unit test. So we would we would see these issues where our unit test was passed, but the application broke. So now we lost confidence in the unit test. So we said, okay, what we're going to do then is we're going to write the unit test. Fine, fast feedback. We're also going to write an integration test that doesn't mock the repository and uses the real stuff underneath the covers. And eventually we found ourselves writing the exact same test twice, one that mocked the dependency and one that did the real thing. We got to the point where the mocked tests started to provide lesser and lesser value because the only time they failed was really when like our, our assumptions were wrong. That we said, no, the mock can return this thing, but that wasn't actually the real thing. Like it was a fake. You've actually mocked it wrong, basically. Exactly. And there's nothing that's validating those assumptions. So we said, you know, the thing that's really finding value at the handler level are these integration tests. I got a book up there, it's called X Unit Test Patterns, and they actually have a name for it called Subcutaneous Tests. 
where the idea is that you're testing skin deep your application. So not to the UI part, because that's too messy, but you go one level below there and do all of the real stuff underneath the covers. And that gives you this high degree of confidence that your code actually works because you, know, you just eliminated that UI layer, but everything else is the real thing. There's a downside though, of course, those tests are slow. So we had to have a lot of strategies to make sure that those tests were fast. But they gave us a very, very high degree of confidence that our code worked because it was using the real stuff. So then we looked at those unit tests. We're like, why are we doing this? Why are we writing all these tests to mock out the data access when like, we, we get the real value from the other thing? So our next iteration of that, that we did Mediator on in this whole feature folder stuff, that was the other like sacred cow we, we looked at. Like, can we sacrifice this thing? Can we sacrifice these unit tests? So we wind up doing that. We said, let's just... Let's just write these integration tests and we'll unit test the domain, the stuff that is truly isolated, like the domain objects, things like that. But we're not gonna try to mock out all of these dependencies we actually own, which is the data, like the database. We actually own the database. We can clear it out, we can restart it, we can do whatever. And just see how far we can get. That was like 10 years ago and we are still, still approaching in the same manner. That sounds awesome. I mean, <laughs> not having to mock stuff up, right? If you're using that architecture and having to go through that whole process, I can definitely see uh, simplifying things because it's going to get caught in the integration tests anyway. But I do think it's also something that most people aren't doing. If you're doing unit testing, right, you're, you're trying to unit test as much as you can, get as much code coverage as you can, whether it's viable unit tests or not, right? And a lot of people are looking at the metrics more, especially if you're upper management. <laughs> sure. Well, we do like, we if I'm looking at code coverage, which I really don't look at that much, it's not something I, mm -hmm. I, I care to chase. I look at it from the holistic perspective, that is unit and integration tests. And then it's really a developer decision and team decision, like where does it make the most sense? And so the thing I, I just, from guidance for my teams has always been like, if you, if you can own and control the dependency, go ahead and use it. And if you find yourself in a test that you really need to isolate some logic to test it by itself, then do so. Like you can extract a class, extract a method in like a second in all of our modern IDEs, then do that. Yeah, that's not a big deal. But don't make it like your very first thing that you do that you're going to mock everything out. Because that's what I, when I first got started doing this uh, like layered architecture, that was our rule. Like you can't, you can't use IO in a test. Like you know IO whatsoever. And then do, you know, we have the testing pyramid or whatever it is, like 99% or 90% of your tests or 80%, whatever it is, should be unit tests. And you're like, well, nuts. Like, uh, how do we accomplish that except for mocking out all these things? But we just saw just too much pain over the years of, of false negatives and false positives. And of course, you know, things breaking in production and be like, ah, oh, the unit test pass. Write better unit tests. Well, we just wrote unit integration <laughs> tests instead. Gotcha. Cool. They are slow, though. That is the only downside is integration tests are, you know, <laughs> a lot slower. Well, have you tried maybe using an in-memory database instead of a... Are you guys using the, the real database? Yeah. yeah, so we... I, I still... This is my... This is like the personal opinion. Still prefer to use an in-memory database. I'm sorry. Prefer to use a, a test database that is owned by the test process. Now, what kind of test database that is kind of depends. So my last two or three projects, I've used MongoDB. And so for those, we use something called Mongo2Go in, in our .NET projects. And all that does is spin up a local Mongo cluster or Mongo instance. And then when the test is done, the Mongo instance goes away. So it's not, it's not in memory, but it is like a real Mongo instance that just happens to like 
live and go away. It's only really if you're using like very specific ORMs like Entity Framework Core that you even have the possibility of doing an in-memory database. Years ago, we tried to use SQLite as our like way to, as a way to make things faster, but we just kept running into problems where it doesn't behave the same as the real thing. Uh, so that's why I'm I'm still pretty hesitant on using an in-memory database as a way to kind of speed things up. One, it's not the same as using, it's not transactional, doesn't provide isolation, it's not asset, all those sort of things, but it can hamstring you in terms of what you can do inside your handler. So I never want to have the case where, so if I'm running an integration test, by the way, I should be able to change the implementation and not change my integration test. But if I'm using an in-memory database that doesn't support the kind of data access strategy I want to use in my integration test, now I got to go back and say, well, we can't, we can't use that or we have to change our implementation. So it can work for a lot of scenarios, but I guess I just run into enough cases where someone said, can we just use Dapper? I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, the integration test won't change if you use Dapper. But now we have to make sure we have a test database up and going because you can't use Dapper against EF core in memory, of course. So what's coming next uh, for Mediator or whatever? Is, is it pretty stable or is there always something new coming down the line? <laughs> with my experience with Automapper and like being way too ambitious with that, like I wanted to make Mediator much less ambitious. So I, I, try, I try not to change that much, if at all. What I do a lot, though, is I go back to our projects and clients to see, well, how are they using this? in their actual systems and how are they, you know, what are the kinds of things that they're now copying and pasting? So one of the things that was added, I guess not that, not that recently, but recently for the life of Mediator was we were seeing a lot of folks leaning on the container for cross-cutting concerns. One example is like logging. They want to log every single request and response in your system. Well, you can do that at like an action filter level if you're using MVC, but that's like, it's actually not that easy to get at the the the, the, the quote, request object and the response object. That's got like an action filter with like a view view result thing and like a how do you get the action parameters coming in? Well, that's some of them, but we also created some. And anyway, so we were seeing a lot of teams using decorators and containers to be able to put behavior around the handlers as kind of a it's just a decorator, it's a decorator pattern, but then. It's it's easy to kind of get to the limit of what a container is designed and intended to do before you're saying this is something really that should be supported out of the box of this mediator because it's kind of in the right spot to be able to put those kinds of extensions into. As opposed to the container, it's really hard to do anything more interesting or more powerful in the container. Plus, I'm good friends with uh, Jeremy Miller. He's the author of a, very, a popular DI container structure map. And he gives me so much crap all the time because of people doing something crazy in Mediator and then bugging him. I'm like, okay, I should just like support those kinds of, those kinds of uh, features out of the box as opposed to leaning on the container to do so when it's just not designed for this sort of things. So that's what I added is just like the ability to have a kind of a simple decorator pattern for your handlers. So if you want to do if you want to do logic before, after, or around your handlers, you could do so. And so we do things like, you know, wrapping, wrapping your handlers in a transaction. Before we would do that in an action filter, but that was like, that was too big of a scope for a transaction. We really wanted like very tightly focused around a handler. So that was a really easy spot for us to do so. Open a transaction, call your handler, commit the transaction, that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of like new stuff, not a whole lot of new stuff. Really, I try to, I try to limit the amount of stuff I'm on the hook for in terms of like people getting mad at me on the internet or GitHub issues. 
So I, the big thing for me is trying to trying to decide like when do I when do I cut full .NET loose and really just go kind of all in on .NET five and embracing all of the language and runtime features that .NET five has over like having to keep full .NET around. So like nullable types is a good example. All of the all the new stuff in C sharp nine I like to take advantage of. Like some of it is supported kinda, some of it is not really. But if you use dot, if you leverage .NET five, it's just like it's just all there for you. And then the the last like big decision I have, I guess, is right now Mediator doesn't have any dependencies. Like it's dependent on like system.dll for full.net. And then for net standard, it's just net standard. There are no other dependencies. But that means that for most of the .NET world today, you have to pull in another dependency to be able to use Mediator, which is to plug in Mediator with a container. So Mediator doesn't directly directly depend on any containers, but it provides a tiny little hook in this delegate function to say, I won't tell you like a an interface or something you have to implement, but you do have to define like this delegate, like which is basically funk of type to object. So I have to give it a type, it has to give me the thing, which is like a DI container, right? So I, I do wonder sometime soon if I'll just throw in the towel and say, I'm just going to depend on what everyone else in the .NET world uses today, which is iService provider, like the, the built-in .NET like DI container thing. I had avoided that for a long time, so I didn't have to write these plugins for everyone's container. But these days, I'm like, I could save myself a NuGet package and just say, we'll just depend on iService provider directly. And then now you just have to reference mediator, not this other thing that has to bridge the gap between those two things. Yeah, right? I remember so, when Automapper kind of made that switch to, you know, really everything working with full framework to being .NET Core. Because one of my projects is still web forms on full framework. And so I'm still using yes. Automapper 8. <laughs> and so, because really to switch over and try to do DI with that was like more than I wanted to go through. So I don't like that kind of pain. So I'm still on <laughs> Automapper 8. That's, yeah. uh, that's two difficult decisions, right? When, when you switch from framework to core um, and the DI stuff, I find interesting because I know several developers who, who detest .NET Core's built-in DI. They think it's not powerful enough or it doesn't give you enough control. And I'm like, sure. it does It does the job it needs to do, honestly, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and you can always, you know, services that add autofact services that or use, whatever it is, you know, you can always bridge the gap there. So that was the big question for me is like, do I, do I potentially make the people's lives harder that aren't using .NET Core DI, but use a bridge? And uh, I don't know. I think either way, people would be mad at me <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> why, why do you think people are getting mad with you? I, I have I see no reason to be mad with you. Um, oh, I have right. seen some code bases that would make your eyes bleed that use my stuff. And they that they think that's wise. Um, uh, people wanna people wanna structure their way out of a problem. Like if there's just enough structure in the code base, it's gonna be clean. Um, and then they use my tools to try to make it make it do that. So like and then they can uh, point their finger at you and say, you're the reason why our code <laughs> <right>. doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. So you uh, consult with people that do bad stuff with your things? <laughs> no. So I used to get some crap of like, you just created these projects to get consult <laughs> consulting dollars. But no, I don't actually, I don't actually consult with anyone. It's like, I have this auto mapper problem. I think I'd probably, you know, 
put forks in my eyeballs if I if I took a lot, a lot of those jobs. No, I everything I do with open source is really just built to serve delivering something for the customer. Um, so some of my projects I, I actually don't use sometimes for years, and then they come back again because I just don't have that need presented to myself. Like my current client, I'm doing a bunch of Angular and API work, and uh, I don't I don't really I don't use a lot of uh, AutoMapper necessarily for API work because I don't necessarily want to couple the API contract to this convention. You know, I want to be able to say this is the contract and it's you know gold contract. You know, no one's changing it. But if something behind the scenes is enforcing this convention that like it needs to keep the contract needs to keep changing, well, that's going to break the UI unless those things are are completely lockstep deployed together. So I I still only use my stuff when it when it you know fulfills the original goals of the project and and nothing more. Even Mediator, like I do a lot of messaging uh, type work these days, and so for those kinds of systems, you're already in this paradigm where you're creating these handlers. How's all your logic? Like Azure Functions, a good example. Like you already have a function that is all your logic. You don't need to then delegate to some other thing to do the work. Just like you've already got this programming primitive. So like maybe someday in the future where ASP.NET Core supports this kind of concept of just like you have the single encapsulated endpoint for a route and all your logic can just go in that one class. And maybe that's maybe that's good enough and that I don't I don't need mediator. So that's still one of those things where, you know, I have to have the need present itself. I have to feel that pain and then I'll pull something in to be able to use it. I don't remember the original question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I kind of had that need, you know, way back before I knew about AutoMapper and I kind of took the other route and instead of writing something like AutoMapper, I just wrote a script that I pointed at my database and it would generate oh. all the GTO files. And I just went that route. <laughs> I mean, the big, big thing is, right, make sure you're using DTOs. You're not passing your... ORM models directly to your views and directly to your JSON, like that's that's the big thing. So 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 that's not suggested, just to pass everything that's in the database to the front. Yeah, contrary to popular <laughs> belief, I like, don't. <laughs> oh God. Well, actually, you know, I watched uh, your your most recent video from NDC, right? And you're doing it the right way, right? Where your 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 queries only contain the information that is needed for the front end to either, you know, do a get or a post. And yep. and all the other stuff can be handled in the handler or further down the pipeline, right? Which is more secure in the end. Yeah. So every single endpoint is designed for a, a front end set of functionality. So even my like when I'm doing spa based work and APIs, I don't create general purpose APIs that maybe someone somewhere else in the world may need somewhere in the future. It's like, no, the, the spa needs to get this data. So I'm going to create an endpoint that returns that data, just like I would do for a server-side application. So we follow those same kind of patterns. You know, DTO is purpose-built for the for the UI that they're serving. And then behind the scenes, it's the you know kind of same kind of handler-based work that you you do for we used to do for well, I still do, I say it, and that we would do for MVC applications. All right, we're just about at time. Does anybody have any last questions before we get on to picks? I don't have a question, but I do want to say, Jimmy, I appreciate your contributions to open source, even if other people don't. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. I'll second that. I'll second that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. 
If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right. So uh, I'll go first with for picks this week. And it's over break. We watched uh, the Netflix show, in the, the Queen's Gambit. A lot of people have been watching it. There's some controversies going on with it, but it was a good show. But but it actually reminded me of another show, which is my actual pick, and that's uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher. So my son really likes chess. I, I talked about buying him some chess puzzle pieces for Christmas. Um, I've always liked chess, but I found this show really interesting. It's kind of like, you know, a little kid, you know, growing up, that's just chess savant. It's got Joe... Mantegna in it. It's got Ben Kingsley, Lawrence Fishburne, things like that. I really found it was interesting. I watched it a long time ago. It's about 25 or so years old. So if you like chess games, check out uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Is it, is it actually about Bobby Fischer? Like, or is it um, someone trying to... Well, it, it's a little kid and he's he's really good at chess. And so they always compare him. Well, he's yeah. got to be the next Bobby Fischer type of thing. Right. No. And it's... You know, was, this was actually done when Bobby Fischer was like in hiding. So people didn't really know where he was and things like that, what he was doing. So it was before he came back out of, of hiding again. But then at the end of the show, they show a little bit of footage of Bobby Fischer when he was about the same age as the, of the kid in this show and what he was doing back then. So there's some similarities, but it's not exactly. Of course, this is, this is a fictitious you know, story. It's not based on anything true. So, but you know, also Queen's yeah. Gambit was good too, if you want to check that out. Well, yeah, that was surprisingly say, good, to be honest. I didn't know anything about chess and I was watching, I was like, oh. The, if you actually know also, chess, the chess moves she was making and were all very accurate, you know, oh, pro really? level okay. chess moves. Yeah. My mind is in a whole different place because when you said Queen's Gambit, I wasn't thinking about the <laughs> chess on Netflix. I was actually thinking about the new Shonda Rhimes. Victoria age Netflix show, which my wife is hooked on. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. They, they have Queens. They both have a queen. Yeah. So what's your pick? Cable? No, I still need Cable? to watch it. Oh, um, my pick is also a Netflix TV show called the magicians. Uh, I think there's five seasons and I think they're going to do one more. And it's loosely based on the books by uh, Lev Grossman, uh, which are really good. So I, I recently just picked back up on season two. I am way behind, but um, but it's good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. All right, why? What do you got? <laughs> so uh, my pick today is on the, the Coinbase uh, reward site. So like a little while ago, I actually set up like a, like a Coinbase account. Coinbase is kind of like a, uh, like a cryptocurrency broker where you can buy like Bitcoin and things like that. But um, yeah, there's a section on the site called rewards, which... I don't, know, I don't know if it's well known, but I kind of found it by accident. Um, and it allows you to like just watch a couple of videos. And then if you kind of answer the questions right, they, just, they actually give you a couple of dollars worth of 
the coins that you, you just watched. So I remember doing it like ages ago when Bitcoin was really big and it was only worth like, like 20 bucks. But then I guess like Bitcoin kind of crashed and I, like everyone else, I kind of just forgot about it. Um, and I don't know, recently, as everyone knows, Bitcoin has kind of gone up again. So I decided to log into Coinbase and kind of gone up. Kind of gone up. It's at yeah, 40,000 like, 40, US dollars today. Yeah. Well, well I've, I've got about the, the $20 that I, that, that I did for doing those tutorials is worth like 300 bucks now. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, so pretty good for like, you know, half an hour's work. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember hearing a story of a guy bought, they bought a Tesla using Bitcoin when it was like a thousand. And oh, so, gosh. so, but. Well, you'd be happy. If you think about what it was worth <laughs> in today's value. What he actually paid for that Tesla is yeah, way or, overpaid. Or, what about the dude who bought the, the pizza or something, right? 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza. Right? Yeah. A so, yeah. That's, it's crazy. But, um, yeah. All right, Jimmy, what do you have for? All pizza? right. So, we're, I guess we're all doing kind of, well, two out of three TV shows, I guess. I'm finishing up two shows Umbrella Academy and Dark on Netflix which I would not recommend watching two time travel shows at the same time. <laughs> it is it's really hard to remember uh, like what timeline what's on. Uh, you're like, wait, this one has superheroes and that one's nuclear. Uh, anyway, but uh, Dark is the one that I really, really recommend because it's, uh, it's one that folks probably ignored because it's uh, all in German. But if you watch it in German with the German subtitles, uh, it really forces you to like pay attention to what people are saying. And Netflix also has a great website. If you get confused, you can pause it and go to the episode for that. And it'll tell you like, here are all the timelines and the people and how they connect up until that specific point. So I won't give you spoilers. You know, I actually picked Umbrella Academy uh, a few weeks back. Uh, no spoilers. I've, I've I haven't enjoyed it. Yet. <laughs> no, 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 no spoilers. And I think they're doing season three. I tried to do dark, but I had the same issue that you're talking about, right? The whole German thing. But maybe I just need to get a few episodes in, get over that hump. If you don't understand German, I just recommend the subtitles. It makes it yeah. much more clear. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounds interesting, but my wife and I have a really big problem with shows that are overdubbed and the lip sync issue. It just drives us crazy. I don't oh, know why. Yeah, so that you can't watch the dub version. You got to watch the subtitles. It's The dubs are distracting. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks um, for if having people me. have questions, how can they get out in touch with touch with you? What's the best way? Oh, I don't want them to. I'm just oh. kidding. You can have me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way. Just hmm. my DMs are open, so you can DM me. Email is cesspool. What's your Twitter handle? Oh, jbogard. Just twitter.com slash jbogard. It's also my GitHub. GitHub.com slash jbogard. And my untapped. You want to see what I'm drinking today? <laughs> nice. Nice. What are you drinking today? Just water. It's not yet time to drink. It's well, I guess it is. It's it's beer thirty now. <laughs> yeah, at least in the U.S. It's happy not hour. in Australia. Well, I, I guess it could yeah. be. I've been to Australia. They drink all day. <laughs> Great. So, if the people want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. I am at .net superhero, and Caleb, and- you are. Caleb Wells Codes. Caleb Wells Codes. I'm actually on Twitter and I, I have cat pictures. If you want to see pictures of my cat, go to my Twitter. Oh, you're going <laughs> that angle. You're going on. My All wife, right. my wife made me do it. 
<laughs> Our listener numbers are really going to grow now. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks, everybody. Great show. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, guys. Thank Thanks again, Jimmy. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. We'll catch, yep. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.